pleasure to introduce you again to Dr. Joel Beakey. We're so happy he could come visit again and this time bring Mary with him. So we're blessed to have you both with us and uh, are thankful for the time you're here here again tonight as well. Um, Dr. Beakey's uh, one of my heroes, small h. Jesus is the hero and he points me to Christ and us to Christ. And so it is uh, definitely uh, even more of a pleasure to introduce him. He is the president of Puritan Reform Seminary in Michigan. He also is has pastored the same church for 34 years. Um, he also is uh, leads the Reformation Heritage Book Ministry, which is no small ministry. It publishes prolifically. Um, some of you in your homeschool curriculum, Christian school curriculum, for your own reading, if you know Elder Galen Musman, is trying to read the whole library, I think. And there's two and a half books, uh, tables of books out in the... Uh, where the book table is. And so you can see those books, uh, and he'll explain more about that later. In fact, if you look at one of these books, I can't help it. I just, this book in particular, this is one volume of a four-volume set. If I wrote everything I know, it would be that much. And so there's a lot of opportunity for us with these books. And Reformation Heritage Books is doing a great job. And uh, Dr. Beakey is an editor an author, and a publisher, and God's using him to really get good materials into the hands of people in the church. But probably what I appreciate the most is his pastor's heart. He loves people, loves shepherding the flock, loves the church, loves to see people grow in grace, have assurance of salvation, know the gospel clearly, and believes in the means of grace, the simple, ordinary, but powerful means of grace that help the people of God grow. So with that, I introduce you once again to Dr. Joel Beakey. Thank you. And please come and bring God's word. Yep. Well, it's great to be with you. And I'm really pleased to return here. I was here a number of years ago and was very impressed with what's going on here. And it's just wonderful to be back. And I want to bring you God's word from John 18 this morning. So if you turn there with me. John 18, it's also in your bulletin insert. We'll read verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus asked to them, I am he, Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So we asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck 
the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. Let's uh, seek his face in prayer. Lord God, we pray for illumination as we bring thy word in these moments. Please let thy word come with the authority, the unction, the power, the life-changing graces that thy Holy Spirit alone can supply. Come and bless us and be near to us in delivery, but also in reception. And let thy word do its work so that we would leave this place asking ourselves and each other, how can I do this sermon? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 18 is a lot more important chapter in the history of redemption than we might realize at first glance. We look at the 33-year-old life of our Savior, and we say to ourselves, well, he suffered and died for his people. All his lifetime he was suffering. But we seldom stop to think that the bulk of Jesus' suffering, the bulk of his payment for the sins of his people, actually happened in the last 24 hours of his life. Everything was building up to this hour in which he would lay down his life for his people. And there are three places that he suffered. Gethsemane, the garden, Gabbatha, the judgment hall of Pilate, and Golgotha, sometimes called Calvary, the place of the crucifixion. The three G's, the Puritans used to call them. And this morning, I want to take you to the first G, Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is often minimized in the sufferings of Jesus. We hear a lot about the cross. We often preach sermons on him before Pilate, but not so often in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have a friend, uh, Paul Washer, maybe you've heard of his name. He spent two and a half years studying every day the depths of Jesus' sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a lot here. And there's a lot for us to learn about our Savior and what he's done for us from John 18. And so I want to look with you at two thoughts. I want to look with you, first of all, at Jesus as king in Gethsemane, and second, Jesus as lamb, hence the title, Gethsemane's King Lamb. Both are brought together. And we'll look at two thoughts. First, we'll look at the king's threefold sovereignty. And second, we'll look at the lamb's threefold submission. So Jesus 
and his disciples leave Jerusalem through the gate north of the temple. Verse 1 says, He went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into which he entered. Now, still today, the Garden of Gethsemane is on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. If you walk up to the top of Mount of Olives, I've had the privilege of being there three times, where Jesus ascended into heaven, you can look down, it's quite amazing, you actually see old Jerusalem with all of its walls right around your feet. And then, on the lower slope of the hill, they called it Mount of Olives, for us it's just a big hill, on the lower slopes is the Garden of Gethsemane, which also overlooks Jerusalem. And today there are olive trees there that are 2,000 years old. It's one of the most realistic places in all of Israel. You can enter the garden. You can picture in your mind your Savior crawling as a ground and crawling as a worm and no man on the ground, crying out, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's a moving place. People ask me later, what what was the most impressive thing you saw in all of Israel? Without hesitation, I always say, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where my Savior poured out his blood for me in great sweat, in agony, feeling the infinite weight that all God's people would deserve for all eternity. All the hell that they deserve is all compressed down upon him. And if it weren't for his deity undergirding his humanity, he would have died a thousand times in those hours. Matthew says, He cried out, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Mark says, He was sore amazed. Luke says, He was in agony. If you bring all the original Greek words together about Jesus' experience in Gethsemane, It simply means he was encompassed, he was encircled, he was overwhelmed with sorrow. He was pressed down. He didn't just get on his knees. He was pressed down by the hand of his father. The wrath of his father was upon him for your sin and my sin if you're a true believer. Gethsemane is a sacred place, an amazing place. And all the while, Jesus is suffering, having taken the eleven into the garden. And the one, of course, was going to betray him, right? Was in the act of doing it. And then he took three more, three of of the eleven, rather, deeper into the garden, Peter, James, and John. But then he goes and suffers alone. Comes back to the three, three times. Every time they're sleeping. What a picture of God's amazing sovereign grace in salvation. Jesus suffering, agonizing, pouring out his soul. And he has to come back to his own and say, what? Couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Salvation is not 1% you and 99% Jesus. It's 100% Jesus in his blood. Well, after this third session of prayer, Judas is on his way. Jesus knows all things, of course. Twice, in fact, verse 1 and again in verse 4, it says, knowing all things that were to come upon him, Jesus 
went forth. Think about that with me. He went forth knowing everything that would come upon him. If you knew everything that would happen to you maybe in the next year, maybe you won't want to go forward. But Jesus knows it all. He went forth knowing he would soon be whipped and beaten and spat upon. Knowing that the hairs of his head would be plucked out. Knowing that great nails would be driven through his hands and feet. He went forth knowing how bitter the cup of his father's wrath was that he had to drink to its very bottom bitter dregs. He went forth to be delivered into the hands of wicked men, knowing he would be crucified, knowing he would abide for hours under the excruciating wrath of God on the cross, knowing he'd be crying out that great cry of dereliction, the most painful cry ever uttered in human history, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? He went forth knowing who you are and who I am. Deserving of hell. Deserving of death. And he still went forth. It's amazing. What a commitment our Savior has to save you, my dear friend. Totally committed. He went forth. He went forth for disciples who had just been arguing who was the greatest, who were now just sleeping, who would now be forsaking him, and one who would deny that he even knew him. With oaths and curses, he went forth, knowing that you and I don't deserve his love, don't deserve his sacrifice, knowing that you and I have too much of Judas inside of ourselves. Judas is coming. Judas lays a plan. Hypocrite that he is. I'll kiss him, he said. So you know which one is the dangerous Nazarene. The plan is laid. 250 soldiers or thereabouts come. They're the Marines of the day. The Green Beret, in fact. They're the, the most stalwart most masculine, most powerful, most well-trained military in the world. Roman soldiers. And they surround the garden. They're going to be like a noose tightening itself around the neck of Jesus. They're expecting, I suppose, to find him cowering underneath some olive tree like Saddam Hussein. Perhaps they have to draw him out of a bit of a pit. But instead, as they start surrounding the garden. Someone steps out and in the midst of the moonlight cries out with royal dignity, Whom seek ye? It's what I call the king's sovereign question. Sovereign, you know, is a word that's a compound word. It's got the word reign in it. He's a king. And it's got sava, free. Free reign. Jesus is a a king who reigns freely, who's got power over heaven and earth. He's the king of kings. And here on earth, of course, in his short 33-year history, he, he veiled his deity most of the time behind his humanity. But here, here in this John 18 passage, we have three bright flashes of his deity. It's called in theology, krupsis. Three quite 
bright flashes of his deity. And this is the first one. The Son of God walks out into the moonlight and says, Whom seek ye? He takes charge of the whole situation, you see. He's the Lord of glory. Well, Jesus, like unsaved people today, is so blinded to his glory that he goes up and kisses them anyway. And those kisses, they burned. They were painful. Can you imagine Jesus? I've had the privilege of training several hundred men for the ministry over the, over the last 30 years. One of them, thank God I don't know of any more than one, has fallen into deep sin. Did repent, thank God for that. But the pain I felt, someone trained under me, falling into sin, Can you imagine Judas for the price of a cheap slave sold Jesus when he was a seminary student for Jesus? Three years in his school of training. The man who held the bag, the treasurer, no one suspected him. What a hypocrite. And he comes and kisses him to betray him and kill him. But all the amazing long-suffering of Jesus. Friend, he says, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? What a question. You know, when the Holy Spirit enters our, in our lives and shows us what sinners we are, we will then understand this question. We will understand that every sin, every known sin, is a betrayal of the Son of Man with a fake kiss. Stephen Charnock, one of the Puritans, said, every time we knowingly sin, we are saying at that very moment, God is not. We're being a practical atheist. Because you wouldn't dare sin if you knew that God was right here, right now. And God is always right here, right now, boys and girls. God is always here. God always sees all things. We're no different in heart than Judas. The seeds of every sin lay naturally in our heart as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. But woe be to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, Jesus said. And so, we can sit looking pretty decent on a Sunday morning in a church like this, but on Monday, what is our life? On Tuesday, Wednesday, are we two-faced in our walk and talk like Judas? Or do we really live wholly and solely for our Savior? Are we indulging, perhaps in secret, in sin, knowing we're desensitized in our own conscience? What a tragedy that is. God help us all. It's a tragedy 
to minimize sin. To see sin as anything less than spiritual insanity against the Most High God. All sin is anti-God. The Puritan John Owen once said, what a man is in secret alone with God is who he is and no more. We just had a time of confession on our knees. I hope we have that confession every day of our lives in earnest because sin is a monster. Sin is an awful thing. I had an elder in my church who's with the Lord now, but he he said to me, my dad brought me up this way. He said, if you're a Christian, you ain't got no business sinning. Every sin is a betrayal of your Savior. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That was a good part of Jesus' sufferings right here. The man he trained was coming to arrest him. Whom seek ye? Whom do you seek? Can you say with this multitude of 250? Jesus, the Nazarene. I mean, it was a good thing they were seeking Jesus, right? Wrong. You see, you can seek Jesus in a wrong way. Don't ever forget that. They weren't seeking Jesus as Lord and Savior, the one who's supremely valuable, my altogether lovely bridegroom and Lord. No, they were seeking Jesus the Nazarene. He came from Nazareth. That was a despised place. Even Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They were saying by implication, he's a prophet, self-proclaimed prophet, who's not worth his salt because he comes from Nazareth. He's a fake prophet. We're going to arrest him. He claims to be God. We're going to arrest him, destroy him, kill him. So you say you seek Jesus. That's well and good. But I ask you in love, for your own soul's sake, please examine what kind of Jesus are you seeking for? John Piper says it so well, better than I can say it. He said, today there are so many who receive Christ in quotes, but they do not receive him as supremely valuable. They receive him simply as sin forgiver because they love being guilt-free and as rescuer from hell because they love being pain-free and as healer because they love being disease-free and as protector because they love being safe and as prosperity giver because they love being wealthy and as creator because they want a personal universe and as lord of history because they want order and purpose but they don't receive him as supremely and personally valuable for who he really is. What about you? What about me? Do you receive him for who he really is? More glorious more beautiful, more wonderful, more satisfying, more than anything else in this entire universe. Can you really say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because I'm in Christ and He's all in all to me. Or do you have to say, I don't really prize Him 
or treasure Him or cherish Him or delight in Him. I really want the benefits of Jesus, but I want to live my own life. I don't want to change my life. I want to live my own way. I'm not really in love with Him. See, that's just the problem. You're not a true Christian if your receiving of Christ happened in a way that required no change in your human nature. You don't have to be born again to love being guilt-free and pain-free and disease-free and safe and wealthy. All natural men without any spiritual life love these things. But to embrace Jesus as your supreme treasure, which involves denying yourself, taking up the cross, and following Him, that requires a new nature. So the sovereign question is an important one to all of us. Whom seek ye? Please answer that in secret between you and God. Do you seek the Jesus of the Bible, the Savior, the Lord, the all and in all? But then Jesus unveils a second aspect of his, of his uh, sovereign Lord kingship here. I call it sovereign self-identification. Sovereign self-identification. First you have the sovereign question. Now you have the sovereign self-identification. He says simply, yet profoundly, ego I me in Greek, which is simply, I am. Now both the ESV, the KJV, most translations say, I am he. Because I am doesn't sound like a complete sentence. So the word he is added. Jesus didn't say, I am he. He said, I am. I am. And of course, he has many I am statements, especially in the Gospel of John, where he proclaims his deity. In John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And you remember in response, it says, the Jews took up stones to kill him. Why? Well, because they knew their Bible. They knew that back in Exodus 3, when God said to Moses, go deliver my people. Moses said, who shall I tell them? What is the name of the God who's sending me to do this? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you. This is the great sacred name of God, the Yahweh name, the I am that I am, the I was that I was, the I shall be that I shall be, the eternal, unchangeable God, the covenant-keeping God. The Jesus, who's the same. The Messiah, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The I Am. Leon Morris, in his commentary, writes it so well. He says, the soldiers, they come out secretly to arrest a fleeing peasant. But in the gloom, they find themselves confronted by a commanding figure who, so far from running away, comes out to meet them and speaks to them in the very language of deity. So isn't this amazing? What comfort to the disciples and what terror to his enemies. Think about it this way. If Jesus can get off the ground where he's bleeding, suffering, dying in the depths of his humiliation and turn around and one moment later in his crypsis give a flash of his deity, 
such that these men fall backward to the ground, every one of them, all 250, losing their swords and staves and torches and all their weapons, all useless on the ground. They helpless before the power of the king of kings. What will it be when he comes in his exaltation on the great day? With all power given to him in heaven and on earth, with ten millions times ten millions of holy angels and all the millions of the redeemed made perfect and everyone shall come and stand before the judge of heaven and earth and give an account of every word, every thought, every action you have ever done, ever committed, ever thought, ever spoken. How will you stand in that day before the Holy One, your judge? If you're not in Jesus, you won't even be able to even think about standing. You won't have one answer to a thousand questions. He would just simply say, I never knew you. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. You know, cast you into the sea of everlasting darkness. Oh, my friend, Judas fell backward. So did the 250. But there was 11 there who must have thought, who made me to differ? But Jesus has taught me to bow before him, not away from him. I wonder if Peter thought that. And the other ten with him at that moment. I'm just like Judas by nature. Sovereign grace makes the difference, you see. Oh, how sweet is the name of Jesus to a believer's ear. When we hear the sovereign self-identification of the Lord of glory, if we're born again, we bow toward Him. And we say, Lord, take my whole life and let it be consecrated wholly to Thee. See how important this question is now? Whom seek ye? And so Jesus allows these discombobulated soldiers to stand up again. They get situated again. No doubt, straighten themselves out a bit. After all, they've just been laying on their backs. Get their swords and staves and torches, and now they're facing Him again. Jesus is a God of second chances. So we asked them the question again. Whom seek ye? Now you're going to say with me, right boys and girls? Surely those men are going to bow before him now and say, Oh Lord, we didn't realize that you are the Lord. You are the Messiah, the King of Kings. We were so mistaken. We heard bad rumors about you. Please forgive us. We're sinners, Lord. Have mercy on us. Of course they're going to say that, right? No. They're so blind, aren't they? They actually said the same stupid thing again. Jesus of Nazareth. As if, as if he didn't throw them on the ground. And you see, that's exactly our human nature. You know what? 
Some of you have come to this church for many services and you're still not saved. You're leaving every church service thinking you're leaving as you came, but you're not leaving as you came because the Word of God either softens you or hardens you. It either makes you bow toward Jesus or you you fall away from Him. You're still trying to hold on to your own life. Don't do that. Don't destroy your own soul. Bend the knee before it's too late. Oh, men, bend the knee and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. But they didn't. They didn't. They just said it again, Jesus of Nazareth. They rejected God's Word. Don't you do that. Don't self-destruct by refusing to believe in the Son of God with all your heart, all your soul. And then Jesus unveils his kingship a third time. First is a sovereign question, second sovereign self-identification, and now is what I'm calling sovereign substitution. If you, I told you I am. I told you I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. These meaning the other 11. I told you I am. Because he's the I am. Because he's God of God and Lord of Lords, as we just, just confessed in the Nicene Creed. Because he's that, you see. He can command, and not a single one of those 250 charged the 11 to kill them. Even though Peter took out his sword from his sheath, and swung wildly at one of them named Melchus, who probably ducked, and he picked off his right ear, and Jesus stoops down and takes the ear from the ground, John tells us, and put it back on Melchus, and it stuck. I mean, it was a miracle. That's a third chance he gave to the men to see his kingship, his lordship, that he's really God of gods. And still they didn't respond. And guess what happens? Because he commanded. Where there's a word of a king, there's power. Because he commanded, these shall go their way. Not a single one of those men attack any of the disciples. I mean, 11 of those men could have wiped out the 11 disciples in no time. They were armed. They were well armed. The disciples weren't. You see, here's the point. Because Jesus is Lord, and because Jesus is the Savior of these 11, he needs to do all the suffering. What he's saying is, I'm their substitute. Let me be scourged, not they. Let me be crucified, not they. Let me be spat upon, not they. Knowing all the things I have to go through, let them all happen to me, not they. Because I'm their Savior. I was sitting next to a man in the plane, a Marine, and he was telling me that they were so thoroughly trained in the Marines that if one, one in their company is attacked, they will all attack the attacker. All of them. If one of their company gets wounded on the battlefield, they'll go at the risk of their lives to pull his body out. Their whole training of this Roman cohort, this Roman band or battalion or whatever you want to call it, was that you always protect your... Here's Malchus. He gets his ear cut off. 
and none of them move. It's because Jesus is king. And as soon as Jesus says this, it's as if he turns a page and says, okay, now I'm going to be lamb. And he gives himself to them. Threefold sovereign kingship in his actions. And now threefold submission as a lamb. They took him. They arrested him. It's the official word for arrest. They bound him and they led him away. Three acts of a lamb. He uttered not a word. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he spoke not a word. He submitted for your sake, dear child of God. The king becomes the lamb. He was willing to be arrested. Willing to be arrested. He gives himself away. He wasn't intimidated. He knew that this was Satan's hour in one way. But he also knew it was his own hour in another way. You see, this is the beauty of this climactic moment in church history. All history has been moving to this hour of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. God has been at work during all the previous centuries from the creation of the world and the fall of man down to this very night with this very hour ever before him. God willed this hour. God planned this hour. God worked out this hour. The incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man, has to be publicly arrested and taken. No one can tamper with God's plan. Not Judas or Caiaphas or Herod or Pilate, much less these fearful disciples. God decrees the rise and fall of nations and empires to reach this moment. God decreed that the high priest and his cohorts should conspire to kill Jesus, that Judas would betray him into their hands, that wicked King Herod, who also beheaded John the Baptist, by the way, and weak-willed Pontius Pilate should fall in with their plans. Satan's hour had arrived. But ultimately, it would be Jesus' hour. Hebrews 2.15. In his death, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So as Satan is biting the heel of Jesus, Jesus is crushing the head of the serpent. So Jesus knew that Satan's hour here was also his hour. He wasn't afraid because his father, the God of providence, with his hand of almighty and everywhere present power, was in absolute control. And I say to you, dear child of God, this morning, let that be an incredible comfort in your life. Maybe right now you're facing unspeakable trials. You don't know which way to turn, except you just cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, when your, first real, your worst fears are realized, it isn't that the Son of God has stripped away or stepped away from the throne of the universe abdicating responsibility for what is happening, abandoning you to the evil that is in the world. No, no, nothing happens by chance. Rather, he is confirming blind unbelief, in the words of William Cooper, is sure to err and scorn his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. It will all work together for your good. What I do now, Jesus said, you don't know. But you will know 
hereafter. Everything happens according to my plan. What befalls us in this life is all a part of the will of our Father in heaven as executed by our Savior. What a comfort. Every hour is Jesus' hour, even this hour. So he's led away through being arrested. But he's also led away bound in the second place. Bound. There's all kinds of symbolism here. The soldiers bind the hands of one who would have gladly gone with them unfettered. They bind the blessed hands of one who's never sinned, who's, who has sealed the eyes, who has healed the eyes of the blind and the lame and has blessed little children. They bind the hands of one who has washed his disciples' feet and broken bread for them in the upper room. You see, Jesus is bound to set us free from the bonds of sin. He was bound that we might be freed. And Jesus is bound so that his people might be bound back to him by obedience, to love, to serve him all their days. And Jesus is bound, above all, by the will of his Father. He spared not his own Son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. That his people might be spared. God is bound to God to save you, dear believer. That's the amazing gospel. And finally, Jesus is bound to restore as a second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane what was lost by the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. Two Adams. Two gardens. And what a contrast. First Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Second Adam bore sin in the Garden of Gethsemane. First Adam was surrounded with glory and beauty and harmony in Eden and refused to obey. The second Adam was surrounded with bitterness and sorrow in Gethsemane and was obedient unto death. First Adam was tempted by Satan and fell. The second Adam was tempted by all the forces of hell and did not fall. The first Adam's hands reached out to grasp sin. The second Adam's hands were bound to pay for sin. The first Adam was guilty and arrested by God during the cool of the day. The second Adam was innocent and arrested by men in the middle of the night. First Adam hid himself after fleeing. Second Adam revealed himself by walking into the moonlight. The first Adam took fruit from Eve's hand. The second Adam took the cup from his father's hand. First Adam was conquered by the devil. The second Adam conquered the devil. The first Adam forfeited lost grace in Eden. The second Adam merited and applied grace in Gethsemane. The first Adam was driven out of Eden. The second Adam was willingly led out of Gethsemane so that room might be made in the heavenly garden of paradise for sinners like you and me who trust in him alone. Praise be to God. Christ regained as the second Adam in the garden All that the first Adam lost. He undid all that the first Adam undid. And more. He secured a salvation from which no sinner could ever fall. In Eden, the sword was drawn and the conflict of the ages began. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed and the eternal gospel was displayed. Because he's the Lamb. He was arrested. It's number one. He was bound. It's number two. And then finally, he was led away. Led away as a lamb to the slaughter. Led away through the very sheep gate that all the sheep for thousands of years had been led through. 
to be used for the temple sacrifices. Jesus went through the same gate, the same gate, led from place to place like a wandering sheep so that you and I, who are like David, our wandering sheep, might find rest and guidance from him alone. He was led seven miles to Annas, to Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, back to Pilate again, and then to the cross. Seven miles without one drop of water to cool his tongue. The innocent lamb, the king lamb, lets himself be arrested, inbound, and led away so that you and I can be delivered. The deliverer delivers himself up. The divinely appointed judge is arrested as a common criminal. The great liberator is bound. The great leader is led away. All for us. Let us praise Gethsemane's Christ, the King of kings and the Lamb of God, and resolve to trust Him more fully, to follow Him more obediently, to look more expectantly for His return, to take us to Himself. He was arrested so that He can arrest us as our prophet and bring us from darkness into His marvelous light. He's bound so that He can free us from the burden of guilt and sin that threatens to destroy us as priests. He offers an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. He's led away so He can govern us as our King by His Word and Spirit and lead us back to God. So what are the takeaways of all this? Well, let me just give you four of them quickly as I close this sermon. Number one, submission to Christ. He submitted to all His trials. And He calls us now to submit to the trials He wisely puts upon us without complaint, in fact, with cheerfulness and thanksgiving, so that we may drink whatever cup he places in our hand rather than plead for another. Number two, like Paul, let us cherish the privilege of being admitted into the fellowship of his sufferings. Let us say like Ignatius, one of the ancient church fathers, who was chained in preparation for his execution, his martyrdom, And looked at his chains and said, all the links of these chains are like pearls that I praise God for, that I'm counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. And number three, let us remember we are being led away, even now, all the way to glory, by our great breaker who goes before us, who takes us by the hand and causes us to follow him all the way to the celestial city. Trust Him. He will make no mistakes with you. On the great day, you'll look back and you'll see that you've needed every trial He's ever given you to prepare you for everlasting glory. And finally, number four, let us honor His giving up of Himself for us with more complete surrender of ourselves to Him so that we would be His willing servants as Paul called it, willing doulos, a willing slave is the literal translation. Which brings me to my closing illustration. There was once an English nobleman in the 19th century, was a millionaire, and he went to California, made millions more in the California gold rush, then went back home via New Orleans and stopped at the infamous slave trading block where a young black girl was being sold as he arrived. And what the men who were trying to outvie each other to bid for her were going to do to her was not good. 
the English nobleman was incensed. And he raised his hand, got the attention of the auctioneer, and said, I'll pay twice the amount that anyone will pay for this slave. And the auctioneer said, do you really have that kind of money? He reached in his pocket, he waved some bills. The auctioneer said, sold. And he came up and took the young lady down from the stand and she spit him in the face. He wiped the spit away, took her by the hand into the downtown area, walked into an office, signed some papers, handed them to her and said, these are your manumission papers. She spit him in the face again. He wiped it away. He said, don't you understand? You are free. And she just stared at him. Finally, she just collapsed at his feet. I thought of, I saw Kyle written, written, uh, collapse today, this week. I thought of this story again. She just collapsed like that. Sunk away. She couldn't believe it. She wept and she wept and she wept. Finally, she said to the the nobleman, she said, you mean to tell me that you paid twice the amount anyone has ever paid for the price of a slave just to set me free? Yes, he said. She began to weep some more. And finally, she looked up at him and she said, can I just ask one favor of you? Can I be your slave forever? See, that's the way a Christian feels. Slave in a good sense of the word. Not the bad sense. Just a willing servitude. I just want to serve you, Lord, forever and ever. I want to, by giving back my all, I'm giving no more than my reasonable service. For you are the king lamb who's done everything for me. Take my heart, take my hands, take my feet, take my mouth, take my gifts, take whatever I have, and let it be offered wholly consecrated to thee. Then you can say, Christ is all and in all for me. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for thy son. And Lord Jesus, we thank thee so much for giving thyself to us in Gethsemane in such an incredible way of suffering so that we could be set free. And Holy Spirit, we thank thee so much that thou dost take the things of Christ and reveal them to us so that we might know him and love him and cherish him as all in all. Please help us more and more to love this Savior with heart and soul and mind and strength and to lay down our lives as willing douloses to be faithful in thy service. And all oh, for the day to hear thee say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response is, Now thank we all our God. Let's stand and sing hymn number 98, verses 1 and 2.